Hello and welcome. This is Search for Truth, your Bible teaching program with Brian Johnston. Hello and thanks for tuning in. Today Brian brings us talk number five in this series of ten programs. They're all about the model for Christian church life found laid out for us in the New Testament. In other words, we're seeking to discover what God intended when New Testament Christian disciples began collective service for God. In today's talk, Brian reminds us what we've covered so far and then widens the study to look into the book of Genesis. If you've a Bible handy, then in a few minutes you'll be able to follow in Genesis chapter 28. But now, here's Brian. Thanks, John. Previously, we've seen from our Bibles that God doesn't want individual Christians to be isolated, nor to be gathered together to do as they please, but rather gathered together based on their obedience to his teaching, which was, of course, first given by the Lord Jesus himself. We've also learned that the result of putting the Lord's teaching into practice led to the establishment of local churches of God. The main features of what it meant to be in one of those New Testament churches is specified for us in Acts chapter 2, which we've looked at in some detail together, and if you missed it, you can pick it up again from the booklet. But basically, we saw that these churches contain believers who have been baptised in water and have then been added together to others who equally are continuing devotedly in the Lord's teaching as found written in the instructions of the Apostles in the New Testament. Our aim today will be to move on to see God's principle of unity explored a stage further. We now want to build up the broader New Testament picture of the spiritual house of God on earth, consisting, as it did in New Testament times, of all those churches of God, just like the one at Jerusalem, but including all those found in the other locations we encounter throughout the various towns and cities and indeed countries mentioned in the New Testament. Because even churches of God themselves were never intended by God to be independent or autonomous. Rather, they form overall a united testimony on earth because they have consistent doctrine and practice throughout. This integrated pattern was established back in Old Testament times, as we'll now see when we look back at the first indications God ever gave to the human race about such a thing as his longing to live with us in what he himself calls his house on this earth. The first mention of a thing in the Bible is generally considered important, so much so that some have formulated it as the law of first mention. Well, the first mention of a house of God on this earth is found in Genesis chapter 28 and verse 17, which we should now read. I'll begin at verse 10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there, because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, 
and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that you give me I will surely give a tenth to you. Perhaps some of the background leading up to this incident wouldn't go wrong at this stage. This is the man Jacob who was born a split second after his twin brother Esau. He actually emerged literally on the heels of his brother. In fact, he was holding his brother by the heel, a posture which would prove to be rather telling, and indeed it explains the meaning of the name given to him as the one who takes by the heel. In life, whatever Esau had, Jacob wanted. In those ancient times, the desirable things belonging to Esau were what were known as the birthright and the blessing. These things both belonged to the son who was born first. He received a double portion of the father's inheritance and was given his father's blessing. However, Jacob's mother, Rebekah, during a difficult pregnancy, had been told by God that, contrary to convention, her younger son would in fact become the greater of the two, as the one chosen by God. Jacob had doubtless learnt this information from his mother, and with her help he tried his best to make it happen. By a combination of taking unfair advantage and by telling outright lies, Jacob obtained both the birthright and the blessing which would normally have been his brother's. Of course, this made Esau very angry, and it was no longer safe for Jacob to remain at home. He set out on a long journey, running away to the place of his mother's relatives. It would be twenty years before he ever returned to face his brother again. We can only wonder at his state of mind as he tried to put as many miles as possible between himself and home. Was he guilt-ridden, not proud of what he'd done, or was he smugly satisfied, or some combination of all three? He was certainly exhausted, that's for sure, tired enough to lie down on the ground and use a stone for his pillow, and when he slept, he dreamed. He dreamt of a ladder reaching up from that place where he now was and reaching into heaven itself. There were angels going up and down on it, and the Lord himself stood above it and was now speaking to him as he had spoken to his father and to his grandfather Abraham. God was confirming his previous plans, but was now doing it personally with Jacob. There was no censure, no rebuke for what Jacob had done, although the means Jacob had used to align himself with God's purpose couldn't possibly have pleased the Lord. Well, Jacob awoke, startled, declaring with reverence that that very place must be God's house, which was the name he gave to it now, and announced that this was the gate of heaven. It's possible he then went back to sleep, I suppose, but when he rose early in the morning, he set up his stone pillow as a memorial stone, 
and ceremonially anointed it with oil. So this stone went from being a pillow to becoming a pillar. And there Jacob vowed or pledged his commitment to God. The first time we hear this from Jacob, and he promised to honour God with his wealth. Suppose at this point we use our imagination and imagine that along comes a man with a camel passing by the place where Jacob now was, previously known as Luz. Jacob is still very excited and tells the stranger that this very place is God's house. How do we think the traveller would react? He'd look around at the unremarkable tract of ground with its few scattered stones and say, Where? Jacob would say, Right here, in this place where I slept last night. This is God's house. I've had it revealed to me in a dream. Probably the stranger would take another look around, again seeing nothing, for truthfully there was nothing to see, and comparing this with his past acquaintance of religious sights, he would shake his head dismissively and lead his camel away, muttering under his breath, that's one crazy guy. After a moment's thought, Jacob might have said, I should have expected that reaction. After all, there's nothing to see here, no stunning architecture, no choirs of angels, no sign in the sky. But then he says, but that changes nothing for me because I've received God's word about this, conveyed in a dream, and I know it to be true, and so from now on this place will be called Bethel, meaning the house of God. And it's much the same in this present church age, although different in some respects, as we'll see. But it's still easy for people to overlook God's house on earth because it's not what they imagine it should be like. More of that later on in our study. But as we now examine more closely Jacob's worshipful response, we see how he felt respect for God was due in this place of revelation, a place where the Lord had been shown to be exalted in authority. We see, too, that remembrance of what had taken place would be necessary, marked by the place being set apart as different from any other place by the use of the pillar and oil. What's more, the revelation he'd received there was affirmed by Jacob by his naming of the place in full agreement with what had been shown to him. And to all these things Jacob added his commitment and a promise to give something back to God. These are the striking features of God's house, as presented to us in the story of Jacob, where we've the first mention of the house of God in the whole of the Bible. I say the whole of the Bible, for the theme of God's house on earth runs throughout the Bible, and those same features we've noted here in Genesis chapter 28 always accompany it. What were they again? Well, there was respect for God in that revealed place, remembrance too at that place of God's choice, and a recognition that he needed to set apart what God himself had set apart, together with a pledge of commitment to worship there.
As usual, I remind you that with this series of talks, there's a transcript booklet containing all of them, and it's free. So, if you'd like one or more, please tell us. I'm about to give you our contact details, so if you've got pen and paper to hand, here's our postal and our email address. Search for Truth, PO Box seven zero one one five, Chilomani Blantyre, Malawi, and our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Now, there are quite a few ways you can access different booklets and talks that we've done in the past, and then you can enjoy these at your leisure. And uh, I'll tell you one way, and that's by looking up www.searchfortruth.org.uk. That's our church's main website, and you can download some actual programmes and uh, transcripts, as well as other helpful material. Uh, Search for Truth as well is featuring on www.searchfortruth.org.uk. TWR360. I'll give you the full address. It's www.twr360.org. And you will be able to find yet a, another excellent way of accessing again what you first heard here on air. So, many, many thanks for the pleasure of your company today. It's been great to have you with us. Next week, Brian looks again into the Old Testament at some instructive symbolism from the time of Moses. Sounds interesting, doesn't it? So please join us and find out more about it. Until then, very best wishes from Brian, from David, from our singers, and from me, John. Goodbye, and may God richly bless you.